Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Will Summer, and welcome to The Daily Beast Fever Dreams. I'm a politics reporter at The Daily Beast. My book on QAnon, Trust the Plan, The Rise of QAnon, and the Conspiracy that Unhinged America, will be available in February and is available for pre-order now. And I'm Kelly Weil. I am also a reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm the author of the book Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything. On this podcast, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, grifters, and influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Welcome back to Fever Dreams. You already know what it is. I'm Will Summer here, as always, with Kelly Weil. Kelly, how's it going? Hey, it's good, Will. Coming in with the heat. I love it. Lots to talk about this week. Really busy week. But before we kick it off, I want to sort of circle back to something we talked about last week with our guests. We were talking about sieges and standoffs like Waco and Ruby Ridge. And I wanted to, unfortunately, update your siege forecast because we've got something brewing out in Idaho. And this is, of course... Related to Ammon Bundy, the usual suspect of standoffs out there. Well, could I just say, we're going out west, right? We're entering our Yellowstone era. I'm putting on a crunchy RRL sweater. Let's do this thing. So, yes, yeah, so what's going on out there? So, this is the Bundy family. Folks may remember them from many a standoff where people would like aim sniper rifles at federal agents and people say, yeah, it's, it's all right. <laughs> you know, I mean, maybe let's see how this plays out. So the Eamon Bundy, sort of the scion of the Bundy family, what's he been up to? So the spark notes is that he's been harassing a hospital, holding protests in the ambulance bay and getting the whole thing shut down for a couple hours where they had to reroute emergency vehicles. This happened a while back. Bundy currently leads a group called the People's Rights Movement. It's sort of like a quick response network for right-wing protests. They send out memos and people can gather in short notice and do things like protest a hospital that they don't like. So this hospital is now suing Bundy, being like, hey, yo, man, you cannot actually shut down our ambulance bay. Rather than respond in a reasonable fashion to this, Bundy has instead just said, I'm not answering any filings from this lawsuit. I'm just going to pretend it doesn't happen. He's gone on plenty of live streams talking about how he's getting too many dang papers from this lawsuit and he just chucks them into the garbage because what right-thinking American's going to read those? Well, the courts say, you have to read them, Ammon. You're legally obliged to read them. So now the court's been trying to serve him these papers. He's not reading them. He's filing trespassing claims against people to try and serve them. The local sheriff's department is trying to serve him. He's filing those claims against the sheriff's deputies who are serving him. And now the sheriff is out with a statement being like, well, hey, what can you do, really? Now, this was the, I mean, the origins of this story. Is this the baby Cyrus case? 
This is the baby Cyrus case, and it's kind of messed up, like, in several respects, basically. This was a case where there was a grandchild of someone connected to the people's rights movement. The baby was not gaining weight properly. Pediatricians had concerns. The parents were allegedly not cooperating with the pediatrician, weren't giving over medical information. And so Child Protective Services stepped in, took the child to the hospital where he was, I guess, given fluids, something like that, returned to a normal weight and eventually released to be back home with the parents. Now, it's complicated. I totally get how it's emotionally charged. But rather than let that process proceed under medical guidance, they instead mustered the troops, protested outside this hospital and made everything much more of a hassle for everybody involved. Yeah, I have to say blocking the ambulance bay. I think that's a we're all for diversity of tactics here on Fever Dreams. But I think I have to uh, <laughs> to, to frown on that one. I mean, so am I understanding right that what you're saying is that the sheriff was just like, eh, I don't really feel like enforcing this. Yeah, I mean, it's reading between the lines of this letter that he put out. And I actually will read some of it because I think it's illuminating. He says, Mr. Bundy has avoided service when he's contacted. and He's becoming more and more aggressive with his behavior with the civil paper servers. He says that the sheriff called Bundy on the 10th. Bundy said that he feels like he's being harassed by the paper servers. He said that he is at his breaking point. That's their job. Yeah, they're nasty little guys. They are. That's their whole thing, man, is that they'll hunt you down. I mean, famously, maybe this is the same guy who served Olivia Wilde with Jason Sudeikis' custody papers or whatever. I mean, that's their whole thing is they're bad little dudes. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely a sadistic profession. I'm certainly not going to argue that. But like, hey, again, that's their job. And you know what? The best way to speed this along to expedite things is just to open the door and take the papers. Like they're just going to get increasingly more annoying as you go on live streams and talk about throwing their papers in the garbage. So the sheriff concludes the letter by saying, in my opinion, if this continues, there is potential for someone to get hurt. He says, I do not want to risk harm over a civil issue. So, I mean, who else can really get away with this? I think that's my takeaway here, because Bundy has previously threatened that he's going to have some kind of standoff with a gun if he loses his court case and collectors come to his house. Anybody else who says, I'm not going to accept papers from the sheriff, and also if you try and collect in my lawsuit losses, I'm going to shoot you. That's usually a legal issue. But with the Bundys, it seems to be like, oh, hey, well, if he says no thank you to going to court, I guess we can't do anything about it. Well, I mean, I think the issue the court is dealing with here is that this is the standoff guy, right? And so normally if someone was to say, man, I'm not going to court, I'm going to do a standoff. You think, well, that guy not going to do a standoff, right? But this guy does standoffs all the time. And so he's backed it up. Here on Fever Dreams, I think a lot of people we talk about are pioneers in what I would call the frontiers of consequences, right? They forge new paths in the kind of consequences you can face. Because you might say, this is not a guy, okay, let's say someone was going to be arrested and they become a fugitive, right? Okay, that's something that happens. But this is a guy who is saying, I'm willing to do a standoff so I don't get served with court papers. And you think, well, let's see how this plays out. As they say these days, let him cook, right? And then suddenly, I think about people like Alex Jones, who famously also faced some pretty severe consequences for his actions. People who say, mm, I don't think the legal system will apply to me. And then inevitably, they find out that it does. So this is certainly something we'll be watching. Yeah, the great frontier, be it the Wild West or consequences, let's rope him cowboy. <laughs> yeah. All right, Will, you're out with new reporting, really disturbing stuff on a lot of major players in the Stop the Steal movement. What on earth is going on with Ali Alexander? 
This is a thorny one, and we're going to have to be careful how we talk about this one. But this is one I've been working on for a very long time. Essentially, the gist of the story is that Ali Alexander, who is a very well-connected MAGA operative, some of his greatest hits include sort of pioneering election denial and getting into the Stop the Steal movement. He organized the rally outside the Capitol on Jan 6th that never happened, yet conveniently drew a lot of people to the Capitol right before the riot happened. This guy is very close with, he, he Trump wanted him to speak at the other rally on the ellipse until Katrina Pearson intervened. And by the way, she's really been spiking the football after my story came out today, earlier this week. But essentially the gist is Ali Alexander, very well connected, Laura Loomer associate, all these kind of characters we talk about. He has, judging by some screenshots, been asking teenage boys at least one of whom was underage for dick pics and sort of engaging in some sexual talk that i think is at most ill-advisable and distasteful and i think if you looked at it in the general terms likely illegal so my story for folks who want to check it out is called stop the steel organizer apologizes after being accused of asking teen boys for dick pics (laughs) i guess that's the long and the short of it but basically the, the backstory here is that these rumors have swirled about Ali's approaches to either underage boys or very young men. And Ali's in his late 30s. And that I think in the the mildest terms, there were with young adults, there was this sort of sense of I'm very well connected. Maybe if you and I were to make an arrangement that involved a sexual aspect, maybe that would help your political career. Down to the more sordid aspects of this story, in which he says to, according to these screenshots, which, by the way, Ali has apologized in sort of broad terms for his actions and has said, oh, but there are some fake messages floating around. But when I said, okay, well, is this message fake? Is this message fake? He did not get back to me. So make of that what you will. But that he was saying to a teenage boy who says that a 15 year old who says that he sent Ali dick pics at Ali's request, that Ali would say things like, why don't you come to Texas for a week and maybe lie to your parents about why you're going to Texas to see me? And things like you never send me any quote jack off material. And again, people dreams is a family podcast but we kind of got to get into it here so this is the story and this stuff has kind of been bubbling for a couple days before my story it has created a quite a lot of turmoil on the far right yeah absolutely has so there's so much to dig into this there's all kinds of attendant side beefs or something but what's really interesting to me is this allegation that ali was trading on his reputation already dubious reputation for sex this kind of communication with young men and boys i mean like He was offering people, quote, internships, I think, for him, very short-term internships in Texas, according to these screenshots. It does kind of strike me that there is this weird right-wing, especially the specific circle, trade in internships. Ali, famously in and out of friendship and loathing with Milo, who is Marjorie Taylor Greene intern. It really does not seem like a credentialed internship system as much as a network of peddling it best influence and at worst man those are not good screenshots yeah i mean i think there is a lot out here on ali and i mean lay the groundwork and you kind of poked at this is that basically of course we know ali and milo and white nationalist nick fuentes were briefly all part of the kanye west campaign and we actually have some reporting out last week that suggests that campaign is pretty much non-existent now but for a moment this was a way to go to mar-a-lago 
and it was a way for potentially to make a lot of money. I mean, we know Milo invoiced the campaign for more than $100,000. I think he ended up making 50 grand for roughly three weeks of work. Nick Fuentes, I think, was reimbursed for 30 grand. So there was this big sack of money represented by Kanye in what appeared to be a manic state trying to run for president and praise Hitler and all this stuff. But basically, there's a little surmising going on here, but it would seem as though Milo was pushed out of the campaign by Ali and Nick Fuentes. And that Milo then, in revenge, he began gathering up all this evidence that had long been floating out there in terms of screenshots and stuff, but never that had really been gathered all up together about Ali and his sexual advances, these sort of allegations. And then at the end of last month, Milo says, I'm going to release the Ali files on Telegram. And he starts sort of drips and drabs. And initially it was guys in their 20s who had what were, I would say, embarrassing exchanges with Ali, but nothing that was necessarily illegal or sort of, as they love to say in these communities, that would make his allies disavow him. Disavowing is a big thing. And then Milo dropped this interview with a guy named Aiden Duncan, who is an associate of Nick Fuentes, who was 15 at the time and then and now is in his early 20s. And these are the head shot as it were i mean these are like the why don't you send me jack off material and then in terms of the waving around the relationships ali kind of hinting if you play ball with me maybe i'll introduce you to milo and milo has claimed that this really outraged him and also here we have to caveat this but famously milo his own political career blew up in 2017 over these remarks where he was sort of condoning or really sort of downplaying pedophilia So here's one example of the message. And I got to say this again, Ali has made some very broad apologies and broad denials. But I mean, this stuff is really old brother. Okay, so for example, he's messaging this 15 year old and he says, rolling with me mostly because Ali's they're going to be in the same place. And he says, I'll have an entourage. If it's me babysitting you during the day, then no. But if it's something entertaining, then maybe. Or excuse me, he says, if it's something entertaining, then maybe. All depends what we're up to. I'll let you meet Milo. There's probably five people I want to introduce to him. But who will be my arm candy? The one with me always in VIP and in and out. Well, that is determined to be by the boy who plays his cards the most correct. This isn't in the story, but then he said, like, always have options with, like, the clap emoji. (laughs) And then he said, arm candy is better than babysitting. Now, Let's stress here, this is a 15-year-old, and this is a man who at the time was in his early 30s. There's all this talk, he's talking about sending the kid money, and then he says, we got a couple rules, and he says, everything is secret and private. We're family. You're allowed to say no. Boundaries are cool. You're allowed to say no. But the less you deprive me of, the less I deprive you of. I mean, he's like... It's literal, literal grooming. I mean, like, if I'm going to pick a nick here, this whole, like, right-wing talking point about groomers or whatever really does actually, like, eliminate young people's ability to accurately report abuse. And, like, this is literal, literal grooming if these are accurate screenshots. He's talking to a child and waving this incentive saying, hey, you want a career? Hey, you want to meet your idol or whatever. Well, I almost don't want to be like, hey, this is hypocritical because it's much worse than hypocritical. The hypocrisy is not really the issue here. But I mean, Ali is like big in or he has been big in with like Jack Sobiec, all these masterminds of the groomer slur. I mean, look in the damn mirror. Like, (laughs) that's exactly what's happening here. I mean, honestly, after the story came out, I mean, I was so focused on these details. And then after the story came out, everyone said, oh, well, 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 the groomer gang. And I thought, oh, yeah, that is a fair point. I guess these are. So, I mean, Milo is promising more stuff to come out later. That's going to be even worse. I mean, make of that what you will. We'll see. But it is not looking good for old Ali. And I mean, the messages really, when you look into them, I mean, 
the picture it paints is not great. And I think what it suggests about what may have happened here, allegedly, according to these victims is not great either. I mean, additionally, there was a 17-year-old that Ali asked for a dick pic, according to the messages, and he, he said, send me your eggplant emoji. I mean, we all know what that means. But then there, there's this other aspect too, which is the Nick Fuentes involvement. And so Milo is also mad at Nick Fuentes because he was involved in Milo's ouster from the Condia campaign. And there's been this effort to sort of paint that Nick Fuentes, because both of these victims are affiliates of Nick Fuentes in various ways, some closer than others. But basically, there's this effort to suggest that Nick Fuentes was aware of this issue and that he nevertheless welcomed Ali into his movement, which, again, is not only insanely racist and anti-Semitic, but is also sort of premised on the idea of having very young men around it. And so these text messages have been coming out where Milo is saying as of a year ago or more saying, by the way, Ali is creepy around young guys. Just be aware of this. You should kick him out, not associate with him, all this stuff. And then seemingly Nick ignoring it um, now sort of with this Aiden Duncan guy who I mentioned who is 15 was sort of like a second tier Nick Fuentes lieutenant. So this is someone who's pretty close to him and that this is now both Ali and Nick Fuentes have sort of been thrown into turmoil. Yeah, it's interesting how many beefs you have to disentangle to kind of understand where the right stands right now. Marjorie Taylor Greene has been looped into it. Of course, she's really tight with Milo, who's... Her former intern and is seemingly... Former intern maybe lives in her home? Right. Well, and this is, I mean, we're really getting into it here. But basically, like, the Nick Fuentes response to this briefly was to sort of say, like, well, Milo tried to sleep with me. Now, Nick would have been, like, 23 at this point. But basically, he tried to sleep with me last year. And that he's now throwing these purported victims under the bus, despite the fact that these guys are, he's saying, well, maybe they shouldn't have been flirting when they were 15. Everyone knows you don't send a guy a dick pic, whatever. And one of his responses was to essentially try to dox Marjorie Taylor Greene, was he said, well, look at this address. There are these allegations that Milo lives at Marjorie Taylor Greene's house. I don't think these are really backed up by property records, but this has become sort of an article of faith among the Laura Loomer anti-Marjorie Taylor Greene contingent. Right. I think it's fair to say that Milo is a around Rome, Georgia a lot. It's not to say that he necessarily does live with her. That's just kind of the meme on the right. Yes. And so essentially she came out and because she has this feud with Nick Fuentes because she spoke at his white nationalist convention, right? So these people used to be buddies, but essentially they had a falling out. The ultimate reason Marjorie Taylor Greene broke with a lot of these people is because she supported Kevin McCarthy for speaker. And so she seizes on my story. And look, I mean, did I ever think Marjorie Taylor Greene would be positively sharing a story of mine? It's kind of one of these the Lord of the Rings thing with the dwarf and the elf. And it's like, I never thought I'd be sharing a post with a QAnon believer, right? And then it's like, well, what about with a friend? Okay, so here's the post. She says, this is disgusting textbook predation of underage boys. And Nick Fuentes was in on it. Hashtag Nick knew. Now she's pulling here a hashtag Milo came up with. So the fingerprints here are not exactly mysterious. But then she says the FBI should investigate. And then a bunch of Ali's associates back-channeling to me and posting on Twitter, start saying, well, look at this picture of the Ali and Marjorie together. Ali posts, Marjorie Taylor Greene loved me until in December 2022. I exposed the fact that Marjorie Taylor Greene committed a crime. Now, this crime, you never want to rule out these folks being involved in crimes, but my sense is it's sort of like a minor campaign violation. It says, now she's trying to intimidate me and other right-wingers with smears and lies, so I do not expose her crime. So it's like essentially, so I will not expose her crime. I have the receipts and I will not be intimidated. And then he had a picture of them and said, remember this night? I mean, this is, for people like me and Kelly, I mean, this is, obviously there's some serious stuff happening here, but when these recriminations start happening, this is when it really gets interesting. 
Yeah, absolutely. And you can't say it enough that these people obsessively keep all their communication logs with each other. I mean, Milo is just a walking blackmail machine. They have so much ill will against each other. And I think they're really just building, honestly, admirable to a journalist, portfolios on each other that they are ready to drop at a moment's notice. So I think there's a lot of uh, backstabbing going on right now. I fear that we're going to learn more. I don't want to learn more about this, but I think it's inevitable at this point. <laughs> I think that is correct. As you say, I mean, a lot of these people involved have big habits of building up blackmail on one another. Milo famously had this hard drive called The Vault of supposed blackmail material that like the people in Charlottesville, it was related to that lawsuit. They tried to get a hold of the hard drive. I mean, it's a whole thing. And often you kind of get into these escalatory cycles where from observing these people for a couple of years, it's often not that you like nuke someone immediately, but it's sort of like, well, why don't I put out this one text message you sent me, stuff like this. I think because there is sort of a mutually assured destruction, not in this case necessarily, but in general, where it says, well, maybe I'll put out this and kind of jab you and show that I have a little on you. So maybe you calm down a little bit, but not like a, okay, I'm going to open the vaults on you. However, we are getting to that point, I think. And there are a lot of disaffected former Nick Fuente's lieutenants who are already out there who are mad at him for other reasons. And essentially what's happening is I think there's an interesting aspect of this, which is how people react when they very much do not have a crisis comms person advising them. For example, I think Nick Fuentes could very easily have said immediately, like, I disavow Ali. We'll never deal with him again, whatever. But he sort of seems to have become wrapped up in this feud with Milo. And so he said, well, I'm going to sort of back Ali for a little bit and then try to distance myself from him on some aspects. But I'm also going to try to throw these members of the Groyper movement, as it were, under the bus who were involved in these allegations. And so now you start saying, well, are these people going to be mad? And maybe they're going to start turning on Nick Fuentes in a more direct way. And it's Essentially, I think there's still a lot out there. And but, you know, going back to just Ali very briefly, I mean, this is a guy who was really well connected. And this is what we're seeing is these allegations are claiming that he used these connections in a very predatory way. And so disturbing stuff, I guess, is how I would sum it up. Okay, Kelly, it has been a tough couple days for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, or should I say Ron DeSwagless, because he keeps getting knocked around. He can't catch a break. And again, I have to emphasize here, this is a guy who hasn't even declared, and already people are saying, eh, Ron should just give up the ghost here and not run. What is going on down Florida way? Listen, I think Ron should do the savvy move. I think he should get indicted for something. It clearly worked for Trump. Get that martyr status. Get that clout. Get a misdemeanor or two under your belt, Ron, and I think he'll really get the campaign rolling. No, Ron obviously eyed as a possible Trump contender, sort of the next best Republican hope for president. And I think he peaked too soon, frankly. I think he was busted too early for eating pudding with his fingers. Trump rolled out that very devastating meatball run insult against him. And now a lot of conservatives are going on the record and saying, "Mm, not so sure about this guy. Chris Christie, not necessarily a Republican kingmaker, but a brash talker. He's out in Semaphore this week saying that I don't think Ron DeSantis is even a conservative. And the reason he's saying that is pretty interesting. It's a bit of a backlash, really, to things that Ron DeSantis is trying to deploy in Florida. DeSantis, obviously, he's a pioneer of this don't say gay bill, real crackdown on LGBTQ rights in his state which has incurred the ire of Disney World. Disney, pretty gay-friendly, doesn't want a governor trampling all over its operations. So 
DeSantis has now been at war with Disney. He's floated recently the idea of building a state prison next to Disney to, like, punish it or something. And Chris Christie is now coming in being the voice of reason. He's saying, where are we headed now here that if you express disagreement in this country, the government is allowed to punish you? To me, I always thought that's what liberals did. So this is the punch from the right being like, you're actually being such a heavy-handed bigot that I think this is actually intruding on my small government sensibilities. It's interesting, too, because, I mean, Christie hits here on one of DeSantis's big promises, which is supposed to be, he's, I'm Trump, but I'm competent, right? I'm just as into punishing your political and cultural enemies as Trump is, but I'm going to actually be effective at it. We're going to do it up Orban style here, right? But you look at this Disney thing. I mean, the wild thing is that he's in this quagmire with Disney. And I think this whole thing started like a year ago. But Disney, all they did was say they didn't like the don't say gay bill. And suddenly Ron DeSantis said, all right, I will arrest Mickey Mouse. We will bring him to heel. And this has now become, I think at the time he thought, oh, this is going to be pretty clever. I'm going to revoke their special little jurisdiction. And we're going to really be a pain in Disney's neck. And then we're going to terrorize other companies into staying quiet. But the issue is Disney is a massive company and they have a lot of lawyers. And so they've been doing these little tricks themselves. So obviously the most famous one is that when right before Florida is supposed to take over this district, the current board, it gets a little complex here, but essentially they gave Disney a very nice deal. And they said this deal will be in effect until I think King Charles is uh, his youngest living descendant dies. 21 years after. So after the Princess Lilibet like 21 years after her, hopefully very long in the future death, that is when Ron DeSantis can step in and have a more iron fist over Disney. Yeah, I mean, this is really like some, we're getting monarchical with it. I mean, they're doing all these ruses. And so effectively, DeSantis has some egg on his face. And now he says, well, we're, oh, you know, we're going to go back and get this overturned. But now Chris Christie says, this is not the guy I want sitting across from President Xi negotiating our next agreement with China. I mean, saying this guy's getting duped. So there's that aspect. And then he's saying, as you said, I mean, I'm going to build a prison next to Disney World. Why does this man want to destroy one of his state's major industries? I mean, it is so crazy. And I think it looks really petty. I mean, this is a guy who is supposed to be gearing up for a big fight with Donald Trump. And he's saying like, well, we're going to make, I mean, they're talking about like ride safety. It's like, we're going to make it. So the sign that says you must be this tall to ride, it's got to be higher. A bunch of little kids can't ride the ride. I mean, I'm speculating here, but I mean, this is really penny ante stuff that he's getting into. It really is. It's very petty. It's not becoming of him. It's also just like 101 bad legal advice. You don't get into it with Disney. They have endless funds and unlimited power. And yeah, I mean, you're not going to outmaneuver Disney. Just try getting in a copyright dispute with them anyway. But it's like this is not dignified, right? You're not going to resuscitate Walt Disney's frozen corpse and like have it out with him. It's one of the most beloved companies and to say that you're going to storm on over to Disney and put a Supermax next to Magic Kingdom is not a winning platform. Can you imagine a Supermax? They're going to put El Chapo there. They're going to put the Discord leaker. I mean, it is such a crazy idea. And this is like Joe Arpaio stuff, right? Like this is like stuff that he used to get up to, where it's like, we're going to make everyone that goes to Disney World dressed in pink or whatever. But now, I mean, you've got to be running for president, man. Yeah. And I mean, also, don't count out the powerful voting block of Disney adults. They are mobilized. They do not have other hobbies. Like, this is just the last fight I would possibly pick as a possible presidential candidate. And yeah, to your point, it's just so needlessly punitive, right? It's, oh, no, it's 
we're going to make it harder to go to Disney World. Is this really what you want to be doing as an adult? So there's also a lot of donor dissent. And the thing I want to stress here is Ron DeSantis has not even officially started his political campaign yet. And already people are saying, well, let's sit this one out, Ron. And the big takeaway here, I think, is that it's interesting that the hold this shows that Donald Trump has over the GOP, that, I mean, Ron DeSantis is supposed to be the Trump slayer, right? I mean, this is supposed to be the guy who's going to stop Trump. Forget about Nikki Haley, all these other people who have way less of a chance than DeSantis does. And already he can't even get in. And so we've got a story. It's hot off the presses from Rolling Stone from our former colleague, Adam Ronsley, and a young little known up-and-comer named Oswin Soupsang. But this is all of it. They got a hold of a DeSantis mega donors group chat, which, by the way, what's that chat looking like? What kind of memes are getting swapped in there, right? So apparently they were really upset that DeSantis kind of tried to triangulate on Ukraine. And so they said, here's one donor. My understanding is that the message was, if we wanted an effing MAGA candidate, we would donate to Trump. They're saying, why is this guy, he's trying to do Trump, but he's doing it in a clumsy way. We're getting upset. And there are other donors are saying publicly, this one shipping heir was maybe doing a little shipping pun. He's saying, it's time to pump the brakes. <laughs> All of these people are just saying openly, like, Ron, I don't know, my man. Yeah, there is actually a pretty interesting take on this from the left, from the writer Sam Adler-Bell, who basically made a parallel between the Trump-DeSantis feud and sort of the Bernie Warren standoff in 2020. Basically, DeSantis is like the option for people who like their little policies and they like things spelled out and they like kind of the academic fringe of it. And Trump and Sanders are a bit more of an id of the party, right? And a few people are definitely going to go for the wonky policy stuff. But is it going to be most of them? Certainly not, especially if you can't be seen to win a fight with Mickey Mouse. Yeah, it really is hitting that competence thing. I mean, and now DeSantis is doing so poorly that now the Trump people are kind of coming around and they're saying, hey, sort of like last trains leaving the station unless you want to be on our blacklist. So Politico got this memo that the Trump campaign sent to DeSantis donors saying now is the time to demonstrate your support for Trump and saying, look at DeSantis's polls. So I have to say, Old Ron DeSantis, they call him Ron DeSanctimonious, Ron DeSanctus, which kind of trying to split the difference there. I don't think it's going great. They call Tiny D, Meatball Ron. It's not looking so great. All right, Will, who is joining us for our interview this week? All right, this week we've got Aaron Kleinman, or people may know him as Twitter personality Bobby Big Wheel. He's the director of research at the States Project, which is a group that looks at right-wing extremism in states and tries to win states over for the left. He's got a lot of takes. We love talking about weird stuff going on in state houses. So he's got a lot to talk about. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Fever dreams like all Daily Beast journalism exist because of the generous support of our subscribers. The people who pay for access to Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, exclusive ad-free newsletters, and our undying appreciation. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com to sign up. 
This week on Fever Dreams, we're joined by Aaron Kleinman. He's a director of research at the States Project. He's also Twitter personality Bobby Big Wheel. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Will. And if I knew I'd be doing this when I chose my Twitter name 14 years ago, I might have gone with something a little more professional. When I mentioned to Kelly that we had booked you, she said, oh, great, we'll have Robert Wheel on. And I thought that was your name. And so I thought, okay, all right, Robert Wheel. And I'm glad I asked you before we started recording. So for folks who are not familiar, what is the States Project, first of all? Yeah, so the States Project, we have electoral work that focuses on winning governing majorities in the states by making sure that state legislative campaigns are more effective and better funded because we really think that state legislatures are the strongest force for change in this country. And so what are we looking for? We're looking for good jobs, lowering costs for working families, rights to reproductive health care, quality public education, clean air and water. And all of those are really issues that are more determined at the state level than the federal level. But state legislative races frequently are underfunded relative to federal races. A competitive state legislative race costs about 3% what a competitive U.S. Senate race costs. So actually, in 2022, we invested $60 million, which I think was one of the largest amounts ever for a state legislative effort. And the result was that we had some really historic wins in Michigan, in Minnesota, where both states are now trifectas, and in Pennsylvania, where we flipped the state house. I am sure. So why don't we just dive on into it? I mean, what sort of wacky or disturbing state legislators are on your mind? Well, I mean, I guess I want to start kind of with someone that actually four years ago, like right after I'd started, I brought to you. It was this guy named Frank Scavo, and he was running for a house seat in Pennsylvania. And a surprisingly large amount of my job is going through the Facebook profiles of state legislative candidates. And on his, he had a lot of stuff that seemed to hint that he thought there was a worldwide pedophilia ring. And I went to you and I'm like, hey, Will, I think this guy thinks Pizzagate is real. And I think ultimately, actually, the New York Times ended up writing about this guy. So just to kind of, and he ended up losing big. But then two years later, he was actually one of the first people to enter the Capitol on January 6th. And so I think that story kind of illustrates that you can see a lot of the forces that will end up shaping the future emerge in these state legislative races because you really are just kind of seeing what the grassroots of a party thinks, what really the rank and file thinks, because there are just so many fewer gating mechanisms, so to speak. In the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate, you can keep the number of Marjorie Taylor Greens to a minimum. I think there are ways to do that. There's no doing that at the state legislative level. And we're seeing really kind of what the right-wing movement really stands for a lot in these elections. That was sort of a mind hunter moment for you. It feels like you were like, hmm, there's something off about this guy, <laughs> you know, and cut to January 6th. You know what? Like, I've done this long enough where I can usually tell maybe within a minute of seeing someone's social media, if like, not necessarily like deep into Q, but like Q adjacent, I can, t- or if they're just kind of one of the people who ran for office, because I will say, there are people who are in, very involved locally. They tend not to like be as into QAnon and all that other stuff. But if their social media is just rife with really national figures. And I think this kind of tracks with like what you've written about in your book, where a lot of kind of the space that QAnon kind of entered a space where local media abandoned these places and they don't have much else to go off of. And so people who kind of are less locally rooted 
can kind of latch onto these grand conspiracies and run for office and they can win primaries because of all sorts of various institutional collapses that we've seen over the past 50 years. So, Aaron, you cover state houses and we've seen um, some interesting trends emerging out of them recently. I'm thinking of several really brazen anti-democratic efforts, including the ouster of Tennessee Democrats from office or threats recently to impeach a liberal Wisconsin judge actually before she even won her election. I'm wondering if you're seeing this as a rising trend in state houses or is it something that's just finally getting more attention? I would say it's a rising trend. Actually, in that Wisconsin race, we helped support the kind of candidate that was trying to break the supermajority. And she came within two points of winning in what was a historically Republican district that Democrats hadn't represented in 30 years. And then after the election, they saw that and they're like, oh, actually, we weren't really going to do impeach the Supreme Court justice. So I think kind of holding their feet to the fire a little bit can help out in trying to stop these anti-democratic actions. But I would say that is definitely something that's been gaining prominence. You mentioned Tennessee. There, the Tennessee legislature really has been overtaken by the far right. The stories out this week haven't even scratched the surface of some of kind of what some of the people there have done, including there's a state senator who said that homeless people should look to Adolf Hitler as an inspiration because he was once homeless himself. And he didn't even make the news really over the past few weeks in Tennessee just because there's like so many other things to cover there. And again, you think about kind of polarization and nationalization and how the importance of local roots kind of gets diminished as local institutions and local newspapers fall by the wayside. And so there's just less accountability. Like there was a time when voters would swing more and be more willing to kind of vote for candidate of a party that they didn't support nationally, but that's really kind of collapsed recently. And so you're seeing really the far right get a more prominent role in these state legislatures. And I think one of the things we try to do is kind of try to help educate people like, hey, the far right takes over your state legislature. You're going to have stuff like this because this is what they actually think. So, yeah, I mean, I'm curious about that a policy level, because a lot of far right projects seem actually pretty unpopular with broad swaths of people. I'm talking about like restricting LGBTQ rights or abortion rights. If you poll most people, they're really opposed to that. I mean, do those platforms seem like winners? And if not, why are Republicans just sticking with them? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, again, if you look at kind of what happened in Michigan and Minnesota and in the Pennsylvania House, we were able to flip four chambers in 2022, even though there was a Democratic president and typically the out of power party ends up gaining seats. And so how are we able to do that? Well, part of it is they have a pretty unpopular agenda. And if you look at kind of what the majorities in those states have done, they're not kind of pursuing these kind of crazy on the fringes agendas. They're governing how they campaign, which is Minnesota, for example, it's free school lunches for every kid. I don't think that's a particularly divisive (laughs) policy. One thing that really kind of set those states apart, though, is that they got fairer maps in the last round of redistricting. And so in a more marginal state like, for example, Wisconsin, where you have a far-right gerrymander, there's no real kind of consequences. Hopefully, now that we flip the state Supreme Court there, we could get fair new districts in place, and there'll actually be some accountability, and the far-right will have to run on its record there and face the voters with it. But gerrymandering is really kind of a huge portion of why they're able to hang on to power. So you mentioned a lot of these ideas that come to represent the American right emerge at the state level. I mean, what are some topics and and some legislative actions that you're seeing bubbling up that you think could become new issues for Republicans? I mean, I would say one of the biggest ones, uh, it was kind of lost 
because of the Dobbs decision. But before Dobbs, there was a law that came out of Texas. It was SB 8. And it basically was a bounty system for anyone who tried to like if you knew that someone was going to have an abortion, you could basically sue anyone from the doctor who performed it to a cab driver who took them to it. And you're also seeing like the stand your ground laws and other laws that are kind of like almost pitting people against each other, like a lot of these book bans as well. And it's really kind of pitting neighbor against neighbor. And I think they come out of this milieu where people writing these laws are kind of becoming a bit paranoid about everyone around them. And I think that is where that movement is heading right now. It's this real kind of level of paranoia about everyone around them and that I think QAnon definitely fed into. And even if these lawmakers aren't posting where we go one, we go all on Twitter, though many of them have, the precepts of there are these shadowy forces all around me and we basically need to have almost kind of like a surveillance or police state to beat our political enemies, that's certainly coming to pass. And then similarly, again, in Tennessee, if you ultimately kind of you need to see elections as you lose, you go home, regroup and try to win again. But it's possible to kind of do that, regroup and come back. But if you think your enemies are lizard people or a global cabal of sex traffickers, you're less willing to see elections as that. And you're more willing to kind of just disregard the results. And so the mutual respect for outcomes in elections is really critical to democracy and something that is eroding on the far right. And last year, when we were looking at state legislative candidates in swing states, I could count on both hands the number in Arizona, Michigan, Minnesota, Georgia, and Pennsylvania put together who are willing to say that Biden won in 2020 on the right. A lot of them were just kind of silent or evasive. And not all of them were basically tried to overthrow the election, though many of them did. But there's just huge erosion in this idea that you need to respect democratic outcomes. And so that's another thing that I think kind of QAnon feeds into. But I do worry that we'll see more and more of. There's very much a sentiment talking about breaking the cycle that the youth will save us, the Zoomers will vote us out of the stranglehold that the right seems to have on state houses. I mean, is that your read? Is it? I know it can be hard to mobilize, especially young people, really anybody for these low level races. So do you see a lot of youth engagement to flip state houses, stuff like that? I do definitely see it. But also, I don't want to put that on people who are still in college. Like, I don't want to, if you're 21 and listening to this, I don't want it to be on you to save democracy. It should be on everyone. I think the good news is I think that, and again, we saw this in 2022, is like when you're actually able to kind of let people know what the far right stands for. There are a lot of different reasons why someone might vote for a candidate who is all those things, party identification, it's what they're used to. And they may not just know exactly kind of the power of the office or kind of where the candidate really stands on some things. And so I think that if we can kind of just keep getting having fair elections, which mean fair maps and kind of showing people what the other side stands for and what we stand for, you can win elections that way and you don't have to put it all on the youth of today. Though I am certainly heartened by youth turnout and I think I'm glad that they kind of understand the stakes, but I don't want to put it all on them. So you bring up the role of gerrymandering and the rights kind of maintenance, this state house rule. I mean, what efforts are there to draw more reasonable maps? You mentioned in Wisconsin, this Supreme Court win might open the door to redistricting. Is there much hope on the horizon for better maps? Uh, it depends on the state. Unfortunately, in 2019, the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court decided 
that basically gerrymandering was not an issue that they would consider or partisan gerrymandering was not an issue that they would consider. And then they basically said, really, we have to kick it to the states. Like, well, if you have a problem, you can always ask your state court. And so a lot of states there have been doing that. And then really the ballot initiative process, if your state has it, hopefully there's an effort underway to kind of draw fairer maps. But one really concerning thing that we've seen is in North Carolina, they had a liberal Supreme Court that struck down a gerrymander. And then the state lawmakers turned around and went to the Supreme Court and they said, actually, under the Constitution, the legislature should have sole power over how elections are run. It's this thing called independent state legislature theory. And kind of taken to the extreme, that theory would hold that state legislatures really have the sole power to appoint electors in a presidential election. And going into 2020, we were really worried that right-wing state lawmakers would actually try to appoint alternate slates of electors, which many of them, there was uh, many tried to do, though nobody actually kind of got a majority of a state legislature to go along with it. But if the Supreme Court kind of blesses this in the Moore v. Harper decision, there's a risk that you could have a right-wing state legislature basically saying this is our legal basis for overturning the will of the voters. That said, Moore v. Harper seems to be in doubt right now because basically the right was able to flip the North Carolina Supreme Court and they might undo that decision that the legislature was mad about. But if the Supreme Court basically says, all right, the theory is still out there and it might be a different state legislature might decide, hey, let's try this again in 2024. So it really is kind of a concern that even in the face of these anti-gerrymandering efforts, state legislatures will try to find a way around them. So there's hope in many states, but it'll be a tough slog in others. And yeah, I I wish I had better news there. (laughs) Aaron, how important has the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade been for Democratic chances at the state level? Because I mean, I think we're seeing this in elections. But when you say, okay, abortion is not going to be up to your state, it obviously for liberal voters and maybe independents puts a lot more pressure at the state level in terms of an issue that affects people. Are you seeing that uh, play out? Yeah. So literally the day after the Dobbs decision was leaked, we won a Michigan special election in a seat that Trump had won by 14 points. And so really since that day, we have seen people really understanding that their state legislature really has control over the laws governing their bodies. So yeah, I mean, it definitely has made state legislatures more salient. I would say, you know, I don't think it's going away. I've seen a lot of kind of people on the right kind of wish casting that, oh, people will stop being mad at this. And it's like, well, the right, when Roe was the law of the land, they spent 50 years being that until they overturned it. And so I don't think it's going away. And I think people understand the stakes now. So I do think it represents a shift in kind of how people will think about their legislatures. And I think in 2022, we saw there was a shift in kind of how they'll vote for their state legislatures. And so yeah, it's going to be an issue that always is there. I don't want to say always, but I don't see it going away anytime soon. Can we talk about Wisconsin? I mean, I feel like this is a state we hear about a lot as sort of an importance of state legislatures and gerrymandering. And obviously, there was just that massive win for Democrats at the Supreme Court level. I mean, what is going to happen now in Wisconsin after that Democratic victory? What should we be looking for coming out of Wisconsin? So Judge Janet Protasewicz, I think I got the last name right. I think I've had enough practice to get her last name right. She will take office in August. And so any lawsuits about kind of in Wisconsin, they actually have an 1849 law that prohibits abortion. And 
some people have been trying to kind of reinstate it and it's kind of been caught up in litigation. And so hopefully that gets resolved soon and the court hopefully will hold that a law that was passed before the Civil War, the intervening 160 or 170 years of jurisprudence have overridden that. So hopefully that'll come after she takes office. And then similarly, I'm sure that people will try to get fairer maps in place after she takes office as well. But again, you have to wait till August for that. So not much for the next four months, but then after that, I would start paying attention in the Badger State again. All right. We've been joined by Aaron Kleinman. He's a director of research at the States Project. Aaron, where can people find your work? Uh, yeah. So as noted, you can find me on Twitter at Bobby Bigwheel. And of course, statesproject.org. That's where you can find all of our work as well. Um, there, We give people a lot of different ways to get involved. And yeah, please check us out. We uh, love kind of having more people understand the stakes of the states and finding ways to get involved. All right, Aaron, thanks for joining us. Thanks for Okay, now we come once again to Fresh Hell, where Kelly journeys into the depths of the American rights id to bring us something truly disturbing. This week, Kelly's been hanging out with the Tube Gang, man. And she, puff, puff, puff. She's got to talk about that sweet, sticky, icky, some new reefer madness emerging on the American right. Yeah, we're still uh, we're still smoking that Zaza, Will. <laughs> yes, yes, thank you, thank you. I was like, I know what you were talking about. Yes, so you got that Zaza. What do we have today? Well, what we've got is a real interesting campaign from some right-wing talking heads, particularly the New York Post, which is very, very aggrieved about the existence of drugs and really trying to position them as a city killer. I noticed a few of these articles bubbling up. And of course, you know, the Post is always putting out a fairly consistent trickle of things saying like, why are these dang kids smoking? But there's been a real concentration of them over the past week or so. I'll read you some headlines just from the past week. The New York Post Let's be blunt. Legal weed is turning New York workers into zombies. New York's disastrous rollout of legal weed is costing money and lives. And this is one of my favorites. How, quote, equity ruined cannabis legalization in New York. No, okay. I mean, the right isn't necessarily always going to be big on marijuana legalization. No, even though polling shows that even most uh, Republicans do favor legalization. But Let's get into these because there's some real bangers here. My favorite is Let's Be Blunt. Legal weed is turning New York workers into zombies. The story rocks. I'm so glad we're going to It rocks. It's absolutely a classic of the genre. And the genre is customer service workers have been insufficiently subservient to me and I need to make it part of a broader societal issue. In this case, he's saying that all of the workers who have failed him are on drugs. He doesn't present any evidence for this, by the way. It's just pure speculation. But I want to pull out some good nuggets, some good anecdotes from this. The author says, I never had to repeat my highly complex Starbucks order, a tall coffee, three times to get a response from the bummed out barista the way I do now. He says, I gave a guy at a Pret-a-Mager a $20 bill for an $8 cup of soup. $8 for a cup of soup, by the way. Like, yeah, clam chowder better be. I asked for a bag. He took the 20 and promptly forgot the soup. Might change the bag and me. At Upper East Side Gourmet Food Emporium, Agata and Valentina. One cashier was so out of it, staring into space while people waited in line. A bank executive who's a regular customer there told me. So, okay, this guy basically hit up the DMs of guests of rich people with niche grievances and said, hey, have any clerks been rude to you lately? Well, it's probably due to drugs. 
Yeah, it's not like these people were just like really ripping bongs. Like, oh, okay, look, look if you change here. I mean, look, we've all had this experience. You have some weird customer service. I would have these experiences where I would say, huh, that guy seemed a little out of it. And then it was only many years later that I realized, oh, that guy Quiznos was high, right? And so it's <laughs> all right. I got over it. And as you're saying, oh, that guy, like, is not really keeping up with it. I mean, these people are saying, let's see, some of these examples here. We've got, as you said, I mean, the guy who just walked off with his $20 bill, which, I mean, once you know the person's kind of a whiny New York Post columnist, a lot of these anecdotes are a little funnier, where it's like someone just takes his 20 bucks and is like, see a chump. I mean, this fits into the whole, the cities are out of control, the cities are in ruins things. And well, I think there's plenty for these folks to write about there, but it's like, okay, we don't have enough with the homelessness or what have you, so we've got to go back to the weed stuff. As it says in this article, the Big Apple is now the Big Blunt. But you know what? I think that's a savvy marketing move. New York City recently rolled out a kind of iffy tourism campaign, I Heart NYC. It's like to overrule the old I Heart New York. I think calling it the big blood would frankly drive at least a certain tourism sector. So it's funny to rag on this post story, right? It's like, oh, no, not my change. But not to be outdone, there's a thriving writing economy about degrading San Francisco saying it's gone to the dog. I do want to, before we sign off here, flag Twitter personality, Michelle Tandler. She's like a tech adjacent person. She's just a San Francisco naysayer. And after the stabbing death of Bob Lee earlier this month, he's a founder of the Cash App company. Tandler tweeted a few questions on my mind this morning. What changed that men of San Francisco went from creating vigilante groups to being afraid to even tweet about crime? Now, first of all, flagging that because the vigilante groups you're talking about are kind of 1800s, extremely anti-Asian gangs. But that's a point for another episode. And then she goes on to say, what would happen if a female dealers were publicly hung? Now, it has subsequently emerged that Lee was not stabbed by a random drug addict. It appears to have been a, another tech executive whom Lee knew. But Taylor has been on this train before. She's previously tweeted that somebody told her that San Francisco dogs were addicted to meth and poop and that they went out at night looking for meth poop. And now this, of course, has just evolved into uh, baseless calls for hanging people that she believes are uh, trafficking drugs. So it's always good to check in on the reefer madness, the additional drug panics, see what they're being used to justify, be it uh, public hangings or just calling in the case of the New York Post for cutting the minimum wage. It's sort of a fascinating character and, and, and one that we're seeing emerge more, I think, from San Francisco that Michelle Tandler represents, which is sort of like the hustle positive tech person who is also the Lord High Executioner saying, all right, let's just get the gallows going here. Hey, don't afraid to fail quickly. Don't be afraid. Let's just try it out. But I mean, the Lee murder here was a really fascinating thing because it became this very symbolic. Elon Musk got in on it, became this very symbolic, like San Francisco's out of control thing. And then he, according to the police, was murdered by another tech guy. I mean, that's a Bosch episode. I mean, that is like a, this guy would try to kill someone and then cover it up. Then everyone would just assume it was a homeless person. I mean, that is a pretty wild thing. And it sort of shows how these things get really ginned up by the, the right wing media. But going back to the weed thing that just fascinating. I love that this guy is just like, I'm going to round up some customer service complaints and then say, that person was probably stoned out of their gourds. You know what? It's legal in New York now. Leave those poor people be. Yeah. Let him have your 20 bucks. I mean, there's this guy who says the server threw away my credit card. That's really, that's just funny. Yeah. You can get those replaced for free. (laughs) On that note, 
Let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some amazing guests at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics to popular culture. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcast app and share the show on social media and at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Kelly is at Kelly Weil. That's W-E-I-L-L. Come say hi. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian DeMeglio. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.